If you have your copy of the scriptures with you, you can open up with me to Jonah, and we will be in chapters 3 and 4 this evening. The book of Jonah is one of the most known stories within scripture, yet also one of the most misunderstood. As I noted several weeks back, as we walked through the first two chapters of Jonah, there is much more to this narrative than merely a prophet, a fish, and a city. There is something deeply Christological, something Christ-revealing at play in what Jonah is experiencing, and it's helpful to remind ourselves at the outset tonight why that is the case. The writer of this book is not merely communicating a historical saga, though he is certainly doing that, but he is also communicating something much deeper that is being revealed through this story. And that is evidently true because the human writer is not the only writer, right? In, through, and behind the words of the man who wrote this book is the handiwork of God himself, right? The divine writer, so to speak. And it is God who, as we know from our Lord's own words on the Emmaus Road, that he is breathing out the words of this prophet in order to make known to us the riches and the glories of his divine son. So as we saw a couple weeks ago, Jonah is being used as a figure for both the nation of Israel as well as the true Israel, the true son of God, the Christ, whom that nation was pointing to. Right? So as Jonah flees from God's commands, he's enacting the covenant rebellion of the nation of Israel from the commands that God had given to them. Thus, as Jonah is judged by the Lord and banished, into the heart of the fish, so too Israel will soon be exiled, banished into the chaotic waters of Assyria and Babylon, where they will reside until the fullness of their exile is complete, here symbolized in Jonah by three days. And thus, as Jonah will be spit out, resurrected, so to speak, out of the waters of death, so Israel will one day experience that same resurrection. But as I just noted, right, this, you could say, enacted parable, this living illustration of Israel's own life with God is ultimately intended to be a narrative of Christ, right? That Christ is the true Israel. He is the true son of God whom Israel was called to be, and he is the greater prophet than Jonah. As we talked about last time around, he never fled from his father's call. He obeyed perfectly. And yet, even though he obeyed perfectly, he experienced our death in our stead, as was his will. And like Jonah, our Lord dwelt in the depths of the earth for three days before rising from that death in order to ensure that prophesied resurrection for all who are his by faith. And it is this living illustration that will continue in the second half of this book. We will both continue to see the rebellion of both the Jonah and Israel, as well as the good promise of a better prophet, 
right, one whom we can fully trust to speak true and life-giving words to our souls. So let's make that our aim, to behold the prophet tonight, beloved. So let's read chapters 3 and 4. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh is an extremely great city, a three days walk. And Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and they dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And when word reached the king of Nineveh, He got up from his throne, he took off his royal robe, he put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. And then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered in sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. And God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. And so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. But Jonah was greatly displeased, and he became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? Because that's why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Now Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in his shade to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. And Jonah was greatly pleased with this plant. And when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. And so God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it is right, he replied. I am angry enough to die. So the Lord said, You cared about a plant, but you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word, and I pray that you would show us much of Christ in it this evening, that you would conform us to his image. Lord, that we would walk from this place, Lord, 
treasuring Jesus, Lord, and loving our neighbors in this room well. And I pray all of this in him. Amen. The first thing we see in chapter 3 is an unplanned success. One of the great ironies of the story is that Jonah is one of the most successful prophets in all of the Bible, even though he overtly does not want to be. After being vomited by the fish upon dry land, Yahweh comes to Jonah again with the same command as he did at the beginning, saying, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. This time, however, rather than fleeing, Jonah walks to Nineveh, though it will soon be shown that this walk is not necessarily a joyful one. When Jonah arrives, he proclaims only destruction upon the city, right, saying, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. And at this point in the story, you can imagine that Jonah is probably quite happy. Right? He's proclaiming the justice of God upon a people who have threatened his nation for so long. He wants fire to consume them. But to Jonah's great sorrow, however, the people do not respond as Jonah presumed they would. And instead of kicking them out or worse, they repent. And they believe Yahweh's words to them. They fast. They dress in sackcloth from the street beggar to the social elite. And when this message is presented even to the king, he took off his robes. And he repents before Yahweh, going as far as to decree that no person or animal was to eat or drink in his kingdom. That the people of Nineveh must turn from their evil ways, saying, who knows, maybe Yahweh will relent of this destruction and spare them. And here we come to another irony of the story. As will soon be seen, while Jonah sees God's character as a curse to him. This pagan king sees God as his only hope. While the prophet has lost track of God's goodness and mercy towards all kinds of people, the Assyrian king is relishing in that beautiful reality. And so as the king decrees, so Yahweh answers. He relents of his destruction, showing a great mercy upon a vastly undeserving people. Now this chapter, as we kind of think about it, is the easier of the two before us tonight. But we're get, what we're given here in chapter 3 is a radiant picture of God's compassionate love for an outright idolatrous and evil people. And as we sit and we reflect upon this mass conversion in Nineveh, we're to see really much of ourselves Right? While we've not spent our days plundering neighboring nations and enslaving them, as Assyria had, in Adam, our hearts were just as far from God as those in Nineveh. And even now, right, as those of us who are in Christ, our flesh often runs back to those idols, those sins that cling so closely. But the message of this text is that God rich in mercy and compassion has sent us a prophet but not one like this text right he sent us one that is far greater than the man that we're reading about in this narrative right our true prophet our greater jonah the christ right he never fled he never voiced displeasure with the father he never lost control he never 
spoke in sinful rage. Rather, Jesus, right, for the joy set before him, right, hear that. Jonah's not joyful. But Christ, for the joy set before him, endured the course he agreed upon with the Father and the Spirit, always unified in will with them, walked in perfect self-control, even when reviled and sinned against. And he expressed his righteous wrath rightly, unlike the prophet in our story tonight. Right? Jesus is our good and our greater Jonah, beloved. Right? As we read of Jonah walking through the city, right, we're to reflect upon Christ, who walked through the earth, doing what Jonah and Israel could not do, who was what they could never be, in order that he might bring resurrection to sinful and idolatrous rebels like you and I. Right? We have a good prophet, brothers and sisters. Right? One whom we can rest in and rejoice in. One whom only speaks good and true words to our souls. Right? Hear that. We have all sorts of prophets around us today proclaiming all sorts of godless things. Things that are hurtful to us. And yet, in Christ, right, we know that he only speaks what is good, what is true, what is beautiful for us in his word. So if you are united to this prophet, beloved, you, like the city of Nineveh, will not face the justice of God in his wrath. Right? And that's not because God has suddenly, like he did, with, like he did not suddenly change his mind about you. Right? When you believed, he didn't suddenly calm down after a streak of rage. Rather, the justice of God is satisfied towards you because our greater Jonah, Jesus, has satisfied that justice through his own sacrifice. Right? If we think about even going back to chapter 1, just as the sacrifice of Jonah into the sea of death brought life to repentant sailors, so too the sacrifice of our greater Jonah upon a cursed tree and into the depths of the earth brings life to lifeless souls, to all who, like here in Nineveh, repent and believe. We don't merely see a prophet in this chapter. We see a king. As the ruler of Nineveh rises from his throne, he sheds his royal robes and he falls into a state of humility. Right? He, though a king, sheds his royal robes in order to stoop down like a servant. Does that sound like a king that we know? Right? One commentator put it this way, only one who wears a crown of thorns will rule with a greater humility. Right? Our Lord reveals himself to us here, even through the humility of this repentant ruler, that Christ, right, he's not merely a good prophet, but he's also our humble king, who did not account equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, born in humanity's likeness, and humbled himself through obedience upon a cursed tree. And it is because of this humiliation that we see figured for us in the king of Nineveh that our Christ is now the exalted ruler of all. But as we move to the last chapter, we see what is really a prophetic fool. Right, this text, I would argue, is one of the most difficult texts to reckon with in the Bible. As we kind of sit back and think about it, what are we to do? 
with a prophet who sits on the side of a hill and throws a childish tantrum. What's my hope to explain how I believe this final episode in Jonah's saga continues to serve the purpose of being a revelation of the person and the work of our Lord Jesus. So we begin with Jonah's anger, right? He's furious that God has appeared to relent from the destruction that God had sent him to declare to Nineveh. And so he begins a diatribe against God, confessing that he knew that something like this could happen, which is why he initially fled. Right? And why did he believe that God would relent of disaster? Well, it's because Jonah knows the character of God. He knew that God is one is who he has always declared himself to be, that he is a God who is gracious and compassionate, that he's a God who's slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and who relents from sending disaster. And as he says that, he ends with the declaration of despair, telling God, just take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. And God simply responds with a deeply probing question, and one that all of us really need to hear time and time again. Is it right for you to be angry? As noted before, it's telling that the man who in this story best understands the nature of God is the one who sees that nature as inconvenient to his personal wishes. Right? Jonah has no desire to see God pour out his compassion and grace upon an undeserving people, and I think that's part of the point of this story. That Jonah sees them as undeserving. And God in this text proverbially speaks the words exactly. And so were you. It's here where we see again how Jonah is being used in the story as an illustration for the nation of Israel as a whole. For the rest of the prophets right, testify to these same feelings welling up within the nation of Israel. It's as if at this point in history that both Jonah and Israel saw themselves as the deserving ones, even though God tells them precisely the opposite in the book of Deuteronomy, saying, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you the land because you possess your righteousness, right? For you are a stiff-necked people. And so Jonah and Israel are fulfilling the words of the prophet Moses. Right? They're still, hundreds of years later, a stiff-necked people. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. They're priding themselves on being God's chosen possession, all the while forgetting that their election was of God's own sovereign choice. Right? They did nothing to deserve that call, just as Nineveh has done nothing to, to deserve the compassion of God in the story. So pride and a hatred for neighbor have led Jonah to curse the redemption that has overtaken this great city. And while all this is a striking reminder of the lunacy of pride, it's also a reminder of the poisonous effects that I would say a hyper-focus upon only one half of justice can have upon your heart. Right? Jonah's hatred for Nineveh does not arise out of a vacuum. Right? There's history between this great city and Jonah's people. 
Assyria has long threatened to crush Israel and has long oppressed them in various ways. So Jonah and Israel really have legitimate reason to have reservations about the people of Nineveh. Assyria's taken much of their land by this point. They've destroyed their homes, their villages. They've murdered countless men, women, and children. But in response to all of that genuine horror, Jonah and Israel have allowed themselves to lean into what is really only a particular demonstration of divine justice. Right? They want a Sodom-like destruction of Nineveh. But as Jonah exemplifies here, they do not want God's justice as satisfied by redemption. Right? And that, I think, is the vital point here and one that we are to reflect upon. Right? Wanting justice against those who oppress and sin against us is a good and a righteous thing. Right? One only has to read through the imprecatory Psalms right, to see that reality of di- that the reality of divine justice serves right, as a strong and a great anchor for the maligned and the oppressed. But the word that this passage speaks to us this evening is that what if that justice that you rightly long for finds its fulfillment not in eternal exile, but in propitiation, right? In the justice being taken on by another, right? What if it ends in that greater Jonah bringing them faith and repentance through his spirit? Can you rejoice in that? Right, that rejoicing, what I want to say too, right, that rejoicing is and will be an incredibly difficult thing, right, particularly for those who have been sinned against in unimaginable ways. But that, I think, also is part of the point as well, that this kind of rejoicing that Jonah lacks, right, this rejoicing in redemptive justice, this being glad at the resurrection of your enemy is only possible if God indwells you, right? The spirit that he has filled you with, right, can accomplish, right, that manner of rejoicing in you, beloved, right? We are filled with the spirit of love and of a love that abounds even to our enemies, right? Sadly, though, Jonah has chosen hatred. And that has made even more clear through his continued actions. Right? He marches out of the city going east, a direction abounding in theological, theological significance. Right? And he sits upon a hillside, erecting a booth for himself in order that he might watch what happens to the city. He clearly thinks that he might still get his wish of destruction. Right? He doesn't want to accept the fact that God's justice can look like the salvation of this wicked city. And so in the words of Job's wife, he'd rather curse God and die. Right? Yet, even in these childish antics, God sends mercy upon the prophet. Right? A gourd, right? which is some manner of a vine-like plant, is appointed by God to temporarily save Jonah from the desert heat much like God appointed the fish to save Jonah from the chaos of the sea. But this plant only lasts a day before God appoints a worm to destroy the plant, leaving it to wither, leaving Jonah shadeless from another appointed coming eastern wind. 
And it's at this point where Jonah yet again repeats his mantra throughout this chapter that he would rather die than to live. So God comes to Jonah again with the same question that he posed before, saying, is it right for you to be angry? This time, however, Jonah responds, yes, it is right. I'm angry enough to die. And tragically, these are the final words of Job in this book. And they're a shocking, their shocking reverberations should not be lost upon us. But God leaves the final word here. He says, you cared about a plant, which you did not labor and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night, but may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish their right from their left, as well as the animals within it. As I mentioned earlier, this chapter, as we kind of zoom out and think about it, can be pretty confusing. Right? Commentators often have no clue what to do with his words. Some often assert as much and just leave it. Others, though with right, I think, or at least a helpful theological motive, have tried to see this in a little bit more of an allegorical fashion, right? Seeing the plant in particular as a picture of Israel's withering hopes that a branch, a vine of Jesse, will actually come to redeem his chosen people. And so in that view, right, this leaves Jonah as a picture of Israel in exile, wondering whether God has forgotten them. Now, while I don't really want to definitively hang my hat upon that understanding or use of the plant in the story, right, those commentators, I think, are getting to something that I think is quite valuable. The, the use of a plant as shade over Jonah's head does not arrive into this story as a theological novelty. Right? For this image right, of a plant providing shade for the people of God is one used all throughout the scriptures, but it also reflects, I would argue, a message that has been consistent throughout this entire book, that Jonah, like Israel, has misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of God and the promises that have come along with it. Right? Notice how God rebukes Jonah here. Jonah is furious about and shows pity for this plant, though he played no part in its cultivation and growth. So God comes to him and says, Why then can I not show pity to Nineveh, who, as their creator, I have sovereignly orchestrated their cultivation and growth? Right? Jonah is furious about God's compassion towards Nineveh, I think, because he, though a prophet of God, has missed the missiological intention baked into the very law and the promises that God had given to Israel. Right? One could even say that Jonah has misunderstood the nature of the real tree, right? the true vine of the kingdom of God. The law that Jonah was so familiar with right, is embedded with this idea that Israel was to be a light to the nations, that they were to be a kingdom that shone as a holy and a clean light to those around them, showing the nations through declaration and deed that Yahweh is the only true God and that he alone can liberate them from sin and death. Yet Jonah seems to have forgotten this. Rather than being a light to the nations, Jonah would rather see them burn. Rather than welcoming the foreigner who repents and follows God, 
like Joshua when he welcomed Rahab and her family into the people of God, Jonah would rather them remain in that city to die as it crumbles in around them. Even in the building of his booth, right, another image rich in biblical meaning, Jonah shows his, his hypocrisy. If we think about back to Deuteronomy during the Feast of Booze, God commands Israel to welcome the sojourner and the foreigner into their shelters, conveying and symbolizing the promise of a harvest of all kinds of people into the kingdom of God. And sadly, Jonah is imbibing the opposite of this biblical and theological call to gospel hospitality. Right? This whole book is a story of death and resurrection. And yet God's prophet would rather retreat back into death in a proverbial Egypt, so to speak, than to rejoice in God's work in bringing those in death's snare to life. So the prophet, at the end of this book, has really become the wilderness generation of numbers, cursing God and wishing to run back to another land. But where does the plant come in? Like I mentioned, right, trees, plants, vines are all common occurrence in the Bible, and and the prophets particularly, they have a very special meaning. Isaiah speaks of a branch or a vine of the Lord in Isaiah 4 that will grow to become a beautiful and a glorious tree, providing shade from the heat for all those who have been cleansed of their filth. Right, this branch, this vine, is then later used in the book of Isaiah to talk about the Messiah and his righteous people, that Christ and his kingdom people are the planting of God, his seed strewn throughout the earth. And as we've heard, even in our study in 1 Corinthians, right, it is God alone who gives the growth of that tree. Similarly, right, it is in this promised anointed one of Isaiah, this, this Messiah, where the exiled people of God are to find shade and protection, as we can read about in Lamentations Four. And last but not least, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 31, the prophet goes as far as to say that Assyria is a kind of tree that serves as protection for the nations beneath its shade. And these nations, I would argue, at this point in history, right, include the very people of God during exile. Right, that God will providentially use even pagan nations as shade which will preserve the true stump of God's kingdom, which will eventually bring forth the true branch, our Lord Jesus. Right? And that is where I want to land this plant field plain, so to speak, in regards to Jonah. Jonah's temporal salvation from mere heat was bound up in the shade provided by this plant, hence his anger when that shade was gone. But what Jonah does not realize is his plant was appointed to him in the first place to be a parable to him. From God. The pity that Jonah shows the plant is intended to serve as a rebuke in terms of Jonah's lack of pity for Nineveh. Jonah's hatred for Assyria right, was fueled probably by the threat that Assyria posed to Israel. And yet, ironically, it is the very mercy and the pity of God towards nations like Assyria and Babylon during the exile his pity towards them that will actually serve as a physical preservation of Jonah's people. Right? Jonah and Israel need both, practically and theologically, the compassion of God 
to be poured out upon undeserving Gentiles in order that a divine vine, a tree, would rise from Jesse's stump. And Jonah has missed, really, a vast forest for a mere tree, and one that he has misunderstood at that. But what does a raging prophet and a plant have to do with us? It'd be easy to just look at this text and say to ourselves, well, what a fool. And he is one. But we should never approach texts like these as if we're immune to this level of foolishness. We often speak foolishly, like Jonah, allowing unloving, slanderous words to flow out from our hearts, whether they be to our spouses, our children, the friends that we gather around in the living room with. Our sinful hearts can issue forth words that actually, when we think about it, don't really sound that much different from Jonah's. We can speak about our enemies right, in godless ways, conveniently forgetting the truth that we hear, even in the New Testament, that our true enemies right, are not flesh and blood, but rather they are the powers and the principalities of this world. And that, right, do you hear that this evening? Because right, that, in, even in our own moment, is a powerful reminder right, that our enemies are not ultimately flesh and blood. And it's because of that that God can say vengeance is mine and not yours. Right? Rather than a task of vengeance, right, God has given us a prophetic one, walking through this world, loving our enemies in both word and deed. As we think upon our task, right, in this text, the story here, God ushers us to think about our greater Jonah. Right, who has accomplished that missiological, that mission victory. In the face of those who would conspire in his death, right, our Lord never cursed them. He never slandered them. He never played the part of the fool. Rather, to his enemies, he cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right, and that is powerful beloved. And that same spirit that issued that cry from our Lord, right, indwells you. If you are grafted upon him by believing. So as we think about the whole book, it's a rebuke, really, of thinking with too narrow of a vision. Jonah misunderstood the realities, the promises that he had been given of a coming, coming heavenly kingdom filled with those from all of the nations. And so as we hear the words of the story tonight, may we not fall into that same trap. It can be quite easy in our own cultural moment that we would obsess about what's going on around us, right? wanting nothing but the dissolution and the destruction of those we see as our enemies, whether they be political or otherwise. But God calls us here to dream bigger than temporal kingdoms and earthly comforts. Right? Our God our divine author, through the words of Jonah, ushers us to gaze upon an eschatological vision, right? one of a perfect prophet who obeyed the call of his father, who sacrificed his life for undeserving sinners, throwing himself into the waters of death, so to speak, 
for three days in order that he would rise and ascend. And that ascended prophet has given us his very same spirit and that very same task that he gave to Jonah, to walk the earth, proclaiming the mysteries of the triune God to an undeserving world. In the midst of all the uncertainty and all the cultural chaos around us, let us not lose sight of that vision. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would use your word. Lord, I trust that it will not return void, Lord, but that we would walk from this place, Lord, just more faithfully in light of our greater prophet Jonah, Lord, that greater Jonah, that we would that we would grow in our love even for our enemies. Lord, even those who plot our destruction, Lord, may we abound in a divine, just unworldly love towards those who even have their faces set against us. And I pray that you would do it by your spirit. And I pray all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.